Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas, and we are your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not-so-typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we're doing an exciting collaboration with the Venture Capital Private Equity Society at Cambridge, and we're looking forward to welcoming the president of the society, Shelby Newsad, as a guest co-host. Together, we will be talking to Bill Janeway, an active growth equity investor, senior advisor and managing director of Warburg Pincus, as well as economic theorist. He co-founded the Institute for New Economic Thinking and has written the book Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, Market Speculation and the State. Hi Bill, thanks for coming on the show with us today. Delighted to be here. Great, if you could begin with giving us an overview of your background. Ah, that's a long story. (laughs) The simplest way to put it is I, I came to Cambridge University in 1965 as a Marshall Scholar in pursuit of a doctorate in economics, which I'm delighted to say I achieved. I then went on a 35-year sabbatical from the academy and from Cambridge and discovered in the course of, say, the first 10 years that I was becoming a venture capitalist. At a very interesting time in roughly 1980, 81, 82, when the markets began to open up and technology, particularly computing technology, went through a phase change from the proprietary closed systems dominated by IBM to the open distributed internetworked systems uh, in which I then spent the next 20 years investing uh, and had the privilege of being grotesquely over-rewarded through the medium of the great tech internet dot-com bubble of the late 1990s. I had, over the course of that time, moved from a small, very specialized, science-focused investment firm called F. Eberstadt to Warburg Pincus in 1988. And in 2006, I retired as vice chairman at Warburg Pincus, completed my sabbatical, returned to Cambridge just in time for the global financial crisis to make economics really interesting again. And then uh, I've been based here during the academic year since then. Uh, In 2012, I published a book that was a kind of integration of what I'd learned in the field and what I felt you, entrepreneurs, investors, civilians, ought to know about how the innovation economy works and the role that venture capital plays within it. And then in 2018, I must say, responding, I think it's fair to say, at the macro level to the shocks of 2016, uh, Trump and Brexit, uh, and also to the micro phenomenon of the unicorn bubble, I produced a revised and extended version of the book, which is kind of the basis on which I've been lecturing uh, and giving talks and engaging in podcasts for the last two years. So there are lots of topics we can talk about today. 
maybe to start with one, your role as an investor. What have been some of the top criteria you've been looking for in an investment over the course of your career? Well, I can't say that I started out knowing what I learned. The point is, of course, it's an apprenticeship business. Mm -hmm. But maybe one way to approach the subject is to talk about how I would read a business plan. Mm -hmm. um, first, uh, I find, of course, the biographies really interesting. The track record of the entrepreneurs, have they done it before, and not necessarily succeeded. Have they had the opportunity to learn by failing? And perhaps in the spirit of, of Samuel Beckett, fail better uh, in the course of, of mastering the challenges of entrepreneurship. But then I am keenly interested in the analysis of the target market. Mm -hmm. And I really don't want to see a market section that begins with the total addressable market is 17 billion going on 1.3 trillion. And if we only get 0.1% of that, we'll make a lot of money. I really want to see the bottom up detailed analysis of who needs what you are proposing to do. Mm -hmm. Then indeed, look at the technology, uh, understand how it fits in a competitive landscape, what uh, miracles have to happen for it to work, if any, uh, or why there's an original and imaginative way of exploiting what has, in effect, been commoditized uh, to leverage and ride on. And then the last moment, you know, take a look at the numbers, but uh, those are the least significant and least interesting. The only reason to look at them is to see if there's some missing logic. For example, if we're going to generate X number of revenues in three to five years, what does that imply with respect to the productivity of Salesforce? and the commitment to investment in sales and marketing. You'll hear one thing going through all that, mm -hmm. and this is something that I teach in my, in my course in the MPhil in Finance and Economics, um, and that is the importance of understanding and managing market risk mm -hmm. as distinct from technology risk. And my experience is that it is far more likely for a startup to fail not because when you plug it in, it doesn't light up. Mm -hmm. But because, yes, it does light up, and nobody cares. Mm -hmm. So that is a kind of you know, distinctive perspective compared to the way I think it's fair to say a lot of early-stage venture capitalists think about the market. You know, If it works, somebody will discover that it's essential to their lives and to their business. I think it doesn't work that way. And what would you advise could an entrepreneur do to minimize the market risk? Well, you, know, you might say the first thing is um, focus on healthcare. Now, th there's a very interesting kind of objective, observable uh, set of data, of evidence, as to why market risk matters so much. And it's kind of the, it, it's explained by the biotech paradox. Mm -hmm. The biotech paradox is very simple. Venture firms invest in startups which are guaranteed not to generate a dollar or a pound or a euro of revenue within the life of the venture firm that's making the investment. Beyond that, these loss-making, research-intense startups 
have been able to go public since Genentech in December 1980 with extraordinary regularity and, this is not very well known, since 2000, since the end of the great tech bubble, more than half of all venture-backed companies in the United States that have been able to go public have been biotech, life science, medical devices, healthcare businesses. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, to me, the answer is pretty straightforward. Those startups are facing a vertical demand curve if they gain regulatory approval. The technology, the scientific challenges to producing that which can be approved by the regulators, whether it's a product, whether it's a pharmaceutical, whether it's a device, those barriers are, 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 are quite high and the time to reach them. But what we're seeing in this data, in this evidence, is that investors, both private venture investors, public market investors, are more concerned with the solution of the market risk challenge. And if there is no market risk, they're prepared to take extraordinary technology risk. With, of course, over the last 10 to 15 years, the increased possibility that before you have to find out that you've mastered the technology risk, Big Pharma, with its declining, monotonically declining productivity of internal R&D, may solve the problem for you by buying you Mm -hmm. in advance. So I think the biotech paradox and the resolution of it through understanding the importance of market risk has much broader significance for the entrepreneurial landscape as well. And when you don't have this unique characteristic in the healthcare markets of third-party payers who, with, with, with extremely low elasticity of demand, in other words, demand doesn't fall when you raise the price, um, when you're not in that world, then you really have to work on understanding the market that you're proposing to address. Mm-hmm. Do you think that paradigm exists in the biotech market in the UK? Because I take your point in the US that there will be a vertical demand. But in the UK, given that NHS is the is a large driver of what's right. adopted in the healthcare system, do you think that a sort of third aspect is added in in terms of the um, cost pressure for startups? Well, it's not so much the cost pressure. I think that what we've seen, I mean, we've seen enormous success mm. right in Cambridge of startups coming out of the university in the biotech world. They're addressing a global market. Their market is not the NHS per se. Mm. And they are subject, of course, to NICE, which we should have in the U.S. Um, the U.S., that you're, you're right that there's a very distinctive aspect of the American market, which is exemplified I would say, outrageously, by the congressional requirement that Medicare, the largest purchaser, the largest funder of purchases of medicines, is not allowed to negotiate price. Mm. And the NHS is very much allowed to negotiate price. So you're absolutely right. There are distinctions in the national markets. But on a kind of global basis, if you actually produce something as, for example, the great Nobel Prize winning Cambridge scientist, Greg Winter, Gregory Winter has done how many times? Five times, six times? If you do that, you are going to be very well rewarded, but you may well be rewarded before and, just, and, and without your venture actually becoming a self-sustaining, 
cash positive, independent business like an Amgen uh, or a Gilead. Those are the rarities. Mm. You've, you've already mentioned that you've managed to bridge an investor's career with an economist's career. How do both disciplines or, or, or fields align? Can economic theory explain venture capital? I think venture capital can help illuminate mm -hmm. economic theory, and economic theory can raise questions that require uh, practitioners to take very seriously. Um, let's dig into that a little bit. So, first of all, one of the contributions of the experience of venture capital is to understand that decisions under conditions of radical uncertainty, decisions made when it is not possible in any quantitatively disciplined way to establish the net present value of the expected future cash flows of this project. Mm -hmm. uh, when nonetheless, Those de decisions made under those conditions have transformed the world and transformed it repeatedly over the last 200 years, from the railroads through electrification and automobiles and, and on to computing and the internet. So any micro model or a macro model that depends on underlying micro foundations that assume what Frederick Hayek, very much in agreement with John Maynard Keynes, called in his Nobel lecture, the pretense of knowledge, the presumption that individual market participants know far more than they ever possibly can. What the experience of venture capital does is provide an evidence-rich base from which to interrogate, challenge, and in my view, override those assumptions. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one aspect of the question. Um, a second one is, and this is one that I've spent a lot of time writing about and talking about, there are a set of stylized facts that emerge from 40 years of data on American venture capital. And the data is much richer, much longer than any other countries for obvious reasons. Um, and it's also better data than you can find anywhere else because it's not reported by the venture capitalists. It's reported by their limited partners. Mm -hmm. And that can make a very big difference. Um, and what the data tells us are, first, there's enormous skew in the returns. These are not normal distributions. These are radically abnormal Pareto distributions. Um, so the means, averages, are really quite meaningless. Um, and that's in the cross-section. Take all venture capital funds ever raised. And then in the time series, looking at firms through time that have raised successive funds, we find something that, that really is not observable in any other asset market, and that is persistence in the returns. This has been just recently renewed in a definitive study by first-class academic scholars, Who's, the title of their paper is, Has Persistence Persisted? Mm -hmm. It has for venture capital since 2000, not for the LBO buyout, the big private equity side of, of the world. 
And you can understand how firms can create a kind of positive feedback cycle. Better firms, firms that may by accident, by sheer chance, have a great set of returns in a particular sub-segment will attract better entrepreneurs. You, that's a story you can tell. There's not hard evidence on that, but the evidence for persistence is real. Um, but the third, which has not been subject to much academic, serious research, I think is also genuinely informative, again, about how we should think about the economy in a broad, in a broad way and the role of venture capital within it. Because it turns out that venture capital over these 40 years has been enormously concentrated and only successful in two sectors, information technology, computing, digital communications, and the services that are enabled as this technology matured into a uh, uh, accessible uh, platform for new businesses and healthcare, life science, biotech, medical. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that when you look back to the post-World War II, well, to the World War II era and the generation after it, these are the two sectors where the American government, above all, but not only the American government, poured literally hundreds of billions of dollars of upfront investment in the science, in translating the science into technology, in procuring the early products of the technology before they were ready for commercial prime time, when they were too unreliable, too expensive, and they pulled the suppliers down the learning curve to low-cost, reliable, commercially relevant mm -hmm. technology. That story of the role of the state has been told, indeed, in this country, notably and with vigor by my friend Mariana Mazzucato. Um, it is a story that needs to be told. It's complemented by another phenomenon that lies like the mission-driven state outside of the primary focus for economists of their work at both micro and macro levels. It's complemented by these periodic, episodic waves of crazy financial speculation, of manias that funded the building of the railways in the 1840s, that funded the construction of the electricity grids in America in the 1920s, and that accelerated by a generation the deployment of the computing and the network, the digital networks that enable the computing to become a digital revolution and change our lives. So that is where I think studying the history of venture capital as an empirical subject of research can inform and broaden our minds mm -hmm. and broaden the minds of economists about how this thing with which, in which we live has actually worked over the last 200 years since we escaped from the Malthusian trap. Mm -hmm. So I think that the third point that you're mentioning is very interesting and something that we want to get into a bit more about the particular sectors that have had a shown 
track record. But before we do, I have a slightly tangential point about your um, second point that you made uh, about certain funds that perform better and then attract better entrepreneurs. So recently we spoke to Tom Britton, who was a co-founder of Syndicate Room. I'm not sure whether you've heard of them, but they are uh, currently a data-driven VC fund. Um, the data being that they track the performance of super angels. Mm. Um, and so I think it's interesting that they're doing that um, because it kind of ties in with your point about economic theory and whether you can actually analyze uh, sort of VC performances um, in particular sectors. And what they're doing is a sort of step back from that and analyzing the performance of super angels and right. in terms of maybe those super angels also attract better entrepreneurs um, if you want to call them oh, that. I, I don't think there's any question. I think mm. it's a very worthy thing to do. You know, there's a long history to these stylized statistical facts. Mm. Um, recently, last year, uh, Tom Nicholas at the Harvard Business School published a very important book. It's called VC and American History. It is the first scholarly exploration of what he calls high-risk investing going back 200 years, 200 years. He begins, this is kind of a specialism of his, he begins with a quantitative analysis, you're not going to believe what I'm about to say, <laughs> of the American whaling industry, the industry in which Moby Dick mm -hmm. is the kind of iconic figure and book and study. And what he shows, because he's got amazing data, each whaling voyage was funded by a syndicate. We know the returns that those whalers experienced. We know that the distribution of the returns, half of them were zero. Mm -hmm. A tiny number were enormously valuable, the same skew. Mm -hmm. And those syndicates were put together by agents who were operated out of New Bedford, above all, but Boston and the New England coast. And those agents also showed persistence in their returns. Here, it was a partnership where the, the best captains would want the best agents and the best agents would want the best captives. And there was a kind of two-way bilateral non-zero-sum game being played. And you can see it in 50 years of data. And he actually matches that against data on... American venture capital post-1980. And it's extraordinary how well they fit with each other. So finding those who can be... Well, I, let me just add one more thing about super angels. Yes. That is relatively a very recent phenomenon. It's really a post-dot-com internet bubble phenomenon because all of a sudden you had a lot of people who made a lot of money. Some of them particularly had been successful entrepreneurs. Um, there's a distribution among super angels. Being a good investor is not the same thing as being a good operator. Mm -hmm. Very much not. That is, a good operator knows that she can take over. And if there's a shortfall in a quarter or there's a problem with an employee, you can just step right in and do it, right? Well, you learn as a venture capitalist that if you've reached the stage where you're telling the CEO what to do, you should have fired her months before. And we used to say at Warwick Pink, this is not great marketing. You know, we, we never fired a CEO too soon. 
because you have a kind of, you know, you have, you're invested emotionally and temperamentally in the relationship as well as financially. Um, so you have to look for the track record of those super angels. And if that's what Syndicate Room is doing, mm. I take my hat off to them. I think that's a great idea. There's some recent research, the great Josh Lerner, the dean of venture capital academics at HBS, uh, has been working along with Antoinette Shore at MIT, who's outstanding. Uh, they've done some work on tracking angel syndicates and their records. Um, but that that data is much harder to come by, mm. and therefore it's less developed and analyzed and in the public domain. I think it's a great approach, though. So do you think you were saying that the biotech space is the one to be in? If you want to avoid market risk. I'm not saying okay. that it's for everyone. Okay. It's very, the technology risks are very challenging. So say you have the technology. Do you think that what it takes to be successful in the biotech space is to um, sort of network or however you want to put it, but attach yourself to somebody with a um, shown track record? Well, there's a, there is data and there's a lot of experience that says that in any subsector, you successful investors, in, if you like, go native. They immerse themselves in that subsector's technology, its market issues, its regulatory, they go native. And that's why you will find in the successful life science-oriented venture firms, there almost always are people who come out of the community of science, of relevant science for where they're, for where they're focused. So that's, that's one part of it. Um, second, with respect to entrepreneurial requirements. In biotech, it's much more about managing a research project. Uh, it's much less about sales and marketing experience and knowledge and relationships. In enterprise software, sure, there's a good deal of innovation still available uh, to exploit, to develop, to pursue, but it's so much more in the relative balance about the go-to-market, as they say, the go-to-market aspect of building a real business. As I say, very, very few biotech startups translate into independent, self-sustaining, cash-positive businesses that require the full panoply of business skills. Um, and through, certainly, to where a project is potentially able to address whether it's, you know, the funding of clinical trials, enormously expensive, the partnering with big pharma, whether on a partial basis or the actual sellout, um, that that's, uh, happens, that, that requires a different set of skills. I would just add, though, that one of the things we've observed, again, over the last 20 years through the financial crisis, became, it's become even more apparent since 2008, uh, is this. Uh, the number of IPOs for venture-backed companies has declined substantially across the board. Uh, as I said, the proportion of those that are for biotech companies has risen, or for life science medical companies, to from roughly 25-30% to 50% or more. Last quarter, it was something like 80% of a very small number of IPOs in the U.S. Um, and in the IT world, more and more deep tech startups, startups that are not just exploiting what is available to produce, you know, the notorious uh, Uber for dog walkers, you know, WAG.com, one of SoftBank's numerous uh, embarrassments, 
um, where the deep tech startups increasingly are, in a sense, following the model of biotech. They are being acquired, they're born to be bought and are being acquired before they start having to deal with the business managerial challenges of building a sustainable business. So I can't tell you what the number of uh, acquisitions per quarter that the FANGs have been doing over the last two or three years in the absence of any antitrust regulation in the United States. But it's not just the, the ones that stand out like Instagram or YouTube, but it's these little tech-intensive, really smart people coming out of computer science and engineering departments who have something that can contribute to improving the efficiency and productivity of the Amazon cloud or of Microsoft Azure. These are being paid, or a little piece of machine learning technology that can be brought into a consumer-facing uh, web service. So there's a kind of a migration in, uh, in IT land, in tech land, towards the same kind of uh, situation that we've had much longer in the biotech world, where what matters is uh, really good discipline, knowledge, understanding of managing techies, focus on producing running code that works, that does what it's supposed to do, et cetera, et cetera. I was very intrigued by your observation that venture capital seems like an asset class where a few investors seem to do repeatedly very well over time. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's there's some stories about that that have more or less strong academic research support. The obvious one is the positive feedback that comes from a moment of success, an example of success in a very particular area. The classic example of this was Kleiner Perkins' first fund mm -hmm. back in the 70s. One of their investments was a company called Tandem Computer. It was enormously successful as a business and in a very dead market, in a terribly extended, painful, long bear market. It was one of the few genuine venture-backed breakout successes. Uh, Kleiner Perkins, firm had been founded by Gene Kleiner from Intel and Tom Perkins from HP. So they were kind of networked into the tech world through their business relationships, but it became an obvious go-to place for an entrep entrepreneurial engineer with a great idea. So KP became one of the leading firms, venture firms, investing in advanced computing technologies over the next 25 years. So that's the kind of anecdotal mm -hmm. uh, expression of it. There's also some data that does show that firms that focus narrowly do better than mm -hmm. generalist firms and that have experts in those particular areas. They, it, it, the firms that have more than just one do better because there are times when you, you didn't want to invest in IT in 1998, 99, 2000. That was a great time to be investing in biotech. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to move across and dynamically respond to market conditions matters. So that's, there's, there's some really good research on that. There's also research on the kind of game between serially successful entrepreneurs and seriously successful venture capitalists, the data tells you that the serially successful entrepreneurs, it doesn't really matter who they get their money from. Mm. They're just good at building businesses. But 
it does matter for the first-time entrepreneurs. First-time entrepreneurs do a lot better, on average, if they have experienced, successful venture capitalists. And it's important to note, this is logic, not empirical econometrics, every serially successful entrepreneur at one point was a first-time mm-hmm. entrepreneur. So there's a kind of feedback. And if it's a good relationship, they may come back even if they don't need it because they know each other. They know what the words mean. They know all the soft stuff mm-hmm. about the relationships. So those are semi-evidence-based mm-hmm. reasons why it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Mm-hmm. And I guess the more general rule you would say is the point about the public markets is it's there's anonymity. You don't have these kind of relationships. Or if you do, you got to be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the private equity world, you do. And the venture world, unlike the big buyout world, it's not intermediated by Goldman Sachs running an auction where the winner is the one who bids the lowest target rate of return and consequently winner's curse is a phenomenon that you could see reducing to the mean returns across the cross-section of investing firms. That does not exist in VC land. As, as a quick follow-up, maybe, one extreme example is SoftBank. Ah, yes. Well, what's your take on, on, on that? I think, the book, I think the book's going to be a great book. The book on SoftBank, the Vision Fund, the conflicts of interest, the extraordinary... I called it a, a chapter in my book, which was about my apprenticeship. It's called Investing in Ignorance. Uh, but I was tiny little bits of money, and I was learning at nobody's great expense. Um, the story of how SoftBank has mobilized this enormous amount of money in an extraordinary leverage structure leveraged in order to maximize the return from the founders, including the executives of SoftBank, um, and how they have committed in a venture fund to be paying out $7 billion a year in fixed uh, dividend payments, um, and then uh, discovered the notion that if you have too much money, that's a comparative advantage. Um, What I actually, I've spent the last three months since the WeWork fiasco feeling a degree of something between schadenfreude and vindication. Um, one of my, well, my most important mentor in my apprenticeship years was a man called Fred Adler. He was a lawyer. He was a business doctor. He was an extraordinary analyst and turnaround uh, engineer for businesses in trouble, as well as quite a successful venture capitalist. Fred's mantra was, Corporate happiness is positive cash flow. When you're paying your bills because your customers give you more money than it costs to deliver them what you're selling, that is happiness. When you can pay your bills not by selling securities, but by selling goods and services. I find it very healthy and welcome that the world of venture capital, as the unicorn bubble begins to deflate, are again discovering the primacy of positive cash flow from operations as the source of funding for growth. Fantastic. I think now is a good point to hand over to Shelby, who's going to be running a quick fire round on the investment perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Bill, uh, for coming today. 
Um, just a few quick questions. Um, what do you think of the rise of super carry in the PE space as a business model? Some firms like Bain Life Sciences are having 30% carried interest. And do you think this is a trend that we could start to see in some of the premier VC firms? Well, given how much capital is looking for return in the context of zero real interest rates, um, the flow in, the, the, the best firms, those with the persistently successful records, can simply be responding in a supply and demand way uh, and be raising the carry. I don't think it's much of a business model. It's an opportunistic exploitation of an imbalance in the supply and demand of risk capital. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, and what do you think of European and Asian sectors in terms of innovation growth equity compared to the States, for example? Well, Europe is clearly growing up, and I think this is wonderful. You can see it nation by nation, and you can see it across nation. There are both obviously successful venture capital firms that now have real track records that are operating in multiple countries. You also have some very innovative approaches, somewhat different, because They need to provide services that go beyond what the typical American incubators provide. I'm particularly close to one that originated in Paris, but is now in London and Berlin as well, called The Family. Uh, Everything's in English, run by French people. I think that's kind of really interesting. Uh, I grew up when Charles de Gaulle was still very much on top of the French nation in multiple ways. Um, So I think Europe is maturing at the same time as the European Research Council is gaining a really terrific reputation for being more risk-seeking, more adventuresome in its research funding than either the British Research Councils or the American National Science Foundation. So I'm, I'm very bullish on, 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 on Europe, and I hope that British entrepreneurs work really hard at maintaining and building new organic relationships across the channel. Um, Asia, I'm, I'm, I'm less knowledgeable about. Um, China, clearly, China, China now accounts for more than 30% of all venture capital last year, uh, at a time when the U.S. over the last 20 years had declined from 80% to 50%. So there's clearly enormous amounts of money, both very uh, predominantly local, uh, renminbi-based, uh, but also a substantial amount that's dollar-based. The market is obviously enormous. The innovative capacity is great. The potential for um, micro bubbles in particular subsectors is just as obvious there. It also is in India. You may have been reading about SoftBank's foray into the, uh, quote, hotel uh, service business in India. Um, So, again, you'll have generation of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists learning by failing but they're learning. Mm-hmm. And just one more question. Um, how do you think your Europe's um, central bank's negative interest rates are impacting the oh. innovation economy? Uh, they, enormous, enormous mm-hmm. impact. I, I would attribute more than half, a very substantial amount of responsibility to the unicorn bubble through the decline in risk-free real interest rates to negative levels after taking account of even a modest amount of inflation, the compression of credit spreads because the central banks have been moving out across asset classes of debt, not just sovereign debt, uh, and mobilizing, frankly, ignorant capital, capital that has no experience of illiquid investments, no experience or knowledge 
uh, the challenges of governance in a high-growth, high-tech, complex new business, pouring money in behind venture capitalists, and in some cases, to the enormous credit of the early venture capitalists, giving the venture capitalists who know what they're doing the opportunity to declare victory by selling their shares to a secondary buyer who can't stand it. If they don't make this investment, they might miss the next Facebook. I mean, one of the joys that is available to professional venture capitalists is the opportunity to exploit dumb other investors. And that's clearly one of the phenomenon that's been enabled by the financial environment. It's another issue, whole set of other issues, not for us to go into here, as to just why the central banks became, as Mohammed Alarian of Cambridge calls, the only game in town for supporting the recovery from the global financial crisis. Another story for another podcast. Mm -hmm in private equity and, and venture capital, um, occasionally we recruit for funds through our social media pages, but it's always, we can never release the name of the fund, for example. And this kind of leads to um, just a group of people that know about the postings instead of like Facebook and Google advertise their postings um, over the internet to whoever can find the jobs. And do you think this is is contributing at all to the lack of diversity in venture capital and private equity? You know, um, it's a very good and very important question. Um, it is the case that people tend to recruit people who are like them, often because recruiting is pushed down to a level where the highest priority, if I'm doing the recruiting, is to get somebody to take this dog work, the boring stuff, off my desk. That's a terrible way to recruit. Um, it has been the case in private equity, not venture capital, of the, primary, the first round of recruiting, the early entry level, being at a small number of major business schools. That's changing. That's changing. And there clearly appears to be a greater recognition, partly because there's so much money in private equity, that recruiting for domain expertise and experience is more important than somebody who has the canonical, you know, decent undergraduate degree, two years at Goldman or McKinsey, pick one, um, first class business school degree, two years at McKinsey or Goldman, pick one, and then go into private equity. But that's, you know, that's sort of commodity pricing. In venture, there's a great, much greater propensity for people with technical education, technical skills. It is still a lot of networking, you know, out of Stanford EE or computer science. Uh, there's an extraordinary, um, it's, it's an enterprise, but it's a not-for-profit. It's based in San Francisco. It's called Code for America. Uh, and in some ways, it's the opposite of Teach for America. Because instead of throwing these bright young college kids into a classroom where they've never, they get, you know, whatever, some week's worth of training, it's taking bright young college kids um, and mobilizing their skills through to, to deliver what state and local governments really can't do for themselves and to bring what has been learned over the last 20, 30 years of access to uh, consumer access to computer-based services 
to bring that into the public sector. Uh, it, it was founded by a woman called Jen Palka, who's married to Tim O'Reilly, the digital guru over the last generation, um, and has been very concerned. It is very much a diverse, and diverse along multiple dimensions, and, but perhaps most visibly along the dimension of gender. And it becomes, I think, a real mark of honor to have worked there for two or three years to have projects that you have your name on them, uh, whether going into venture capital or going, going to tech firms. So I think these kind of alternative channels for uh, proving your capacity uh, under pressure could become a, a very useful way to bringing diversity into, which is very much needed into venture capital. Okay, great. We're going to dive back into a quick fire round. Um, and Thomas is now going to take us through the startup perspective. So maybe to start with uh, a question on founders seeking investment, what are the best ways for founders starting a company to seek investment? Well, you know, there's an old line, you, you know, you, you, friends and family is where you begin and it's where you hope to escape as soon as possible. Um, the um, one of the challenges with with raising first money in America from friends and family is that all too often at least one of them is a lawyer, and all they know is that if something goes wrong, that means there's a lawsuit. Um, I was always very nervous about going involved with startups where there was too much friends and family in the first round, because of the uh, in the seed round because of that concern. But there are now, of course, you've got this incubator phenomenon. This has really emerged just in the last 20 years. Um, and, and beyond the incubators, these networks of angel and super angel investors, um, learning how to translate a technical idea, a, a, an understanding about a hole in the market into a form that can be consumed by people who have some money. And then, and this is really important, defining in advance what 500,000 or 1 million or 2 million, what I can prove with that. What evidence can I generate? I can tell you, Tom, if you give me this money in 12 months, I'll be able to tell you X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. That is really important so that you can have a marker along the way to raising more money at a higher valuation. And that's even true, what you suggest, for deep tech investments that often say, yeah, we, it, we need that money, but you get something in 10 years, 15 years' time. Well, first, there are whole domains that have never been happy hunting grounds for venture capitalists precisely because of that. If you want to invest in, you know, cold fusion uh, or desktop nuclear, God bless you, but... No rational venture capitalist is going to do that. That's for big government or for crazy billionaire funders. Um, the, uh, uh, but even if it's deep tech, you're going to be able to show some running code in six months or 12 months. And, and you can do that. And one of the transformational factors of the last 20 years, you can do that now with free software as tools and renting the computing resources. It used to be that you had to have 10 million bucks or so just to be able to produce some code. So you had to buy the licenses and the machines. Mm. So that has really lowered the access point. It's what my friend Raman Ananda, who's now at Imperial Business School, great scholar of venture capital, calls the, the reduced cost of experimentation. Mm -hmm. 
And that suggests that an entrepreneur in that world should certainly, and even in the world of biotech, you should be able to have some scientific proofs of concept, some technical benchmarks mm -hmm. that you can show for the money that you're raising. And flipping that uh, notion around, what should uh, an entrepreneurial team look for in investors? Should they go for the well-known investors? Should they go for the niche investors? What would be your recommendations? Well, first, when you join with a venture firm, you're really enjoying with a, uh, joining with a venture partner. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one. So it, it really matters that the, the, the brand value on the firm is less important than the actual individual. Second, you know, the entrepreneur gets to choose. Um, I've had the experience both of being invited to be the lead slash sole investor because the entrepreneurs decided that I really understood what they were doing and the context in which they were doing it. I could participate in the conversation. I could translate their geek stuff into financial business kind of Uh, context. And I've had others who basically said exactly the same thing and then said, and that's exactly why we don't want you as an investor. <laughs> so, but you know, the investor who doesn't want a knowledgeable, may turn out, that, that investor might turn out to be Steve Jobs. Might. Mm -hmm. Most of the times he won't. Mm -hmm. Most of the time she'll just be arrogant. Most of the time, you know, it's very important to note in the most notorious failed startup with the litigation still outstanding that to the credit of the American venture capital industry, mm -hmm. no professional venture capital firm gave Elizabeth Holmes one penny. Mm -hmm. She raised all her money from mm -hmm. Rupert Murdoch and his peer group. Mm -hmm. That's very telling. That's the Theranos story. You're That's the Theranos story, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's also an indicator, by the way, if you have a startup where you have three members, former members of the president's cabinet, mm -hmm. the youngest of whom I believe was 87. Mm -hmm. Two of them were in their 90s. All three of them, I can guarantee you, wouldn't have, would barely have known how to spell the word hematology. That's a really good indicator to head for the exit. Do not pass go. Do not <laughs> collect your $100. Go home. And final quick question. Um, What's the preferred level of involvement of investors in companies? You already mentioned that if an investor has to tell the CEO what to do, that's not a good sign. But what's the right relationship to have between investor that's and a, company? That's a great question. And of course, it's dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, years and years and years ago, I formulated, and since it's in my book, it's not a secret, that the first law of venture capital is all entrepreneurs lie. Mm -hmm. And the corollary is the ones who really get you in trouble are the ones who don't know they are because they're telling a story, just like Elon Musk has been doing. They're telling a story about how they're going to transform the world through their own unique contributions. And the world pushes back. The world, most ventures still fail. And the, the, the job of the venture capitalist in that way is follow the cash. Entrepreneurs may lie, cash doesn't lie. So if you have a business plan that spells out, you have a budget, and you, your job is absolutely to be on top of that budget. And whether there are de deviations, cash deviations, that are not a matter of accounting nonsense, to be asking the questions. And that's where you get to find out whether the entrepreneur wants a partner or a pigeon, as we say in America. 
Um, and so the working relationship is obviously a function of are they is the, is the venture on plan? Is it on plan with respect to technical metrics, marketing metrics, and above all, cash metrics? If it's not, then you have to roll up your sleeves and get involved. And if it becomes a turnaround, then I like to say, let me, this might be a, a good point on which to close. In any venture capital investment, there are actually two securities that are being exchanged. Obviously, there's a security being issued by the founders, by the venture, convertible preferred stock. But the venture investor is also issuing a virtual security, an open, a call option on time and energy, mm -hmm. which is at the entrepreneur's initiative to exercise. That's why in a world of, 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 of vast increase in the number of startups, the vast increase, the, in the reduction in the cost of experimentation, investors have had to adopt a strategy of sort of um, spray and pray with a little bit of money to see which come back and say, well, we actually did something useful. Because then when you make the real investment, you're issuing that call option. And you can't do that too many times or you won't be able to satisfy any of them. Mm, that's great advice. And maybe to finish with a, a fun question, what investment would you have liked to do but never did? Oh, more than, more than just a few. Um, uh, I'd say that the one that I, in effect, I don't regret because I think we didn't do it for the right reason. In 1977, I got a phone call from a guy called Bob Swanson, who'd been an analyst, at, uh, an investment analyst at Citibank and a client of our firm, the firm, the F. Eberstadt firm I mentioned. And he told me that he'd kind of uh, been moved from Kleiner Perkins to take responsibility as sort of sort of the business guy at this startup called Genentech. And we did put a year into uh, research. It really got deeply engaged into the burgeoning world of genetic engineering, molecular mm -hmm. biology. And we decided that rather than try to pick one of the you know, gold miners, we wanted to try to build a company like Levi Strauss that was going to sell to all of them. And mm -hmm. we created Life Technologies. I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, sure, I'd have liked to have invested in Genentech as well. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> thank you so much, Bill, for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. Yes, thank you very much. I think um, everybody here agrees, and hopefully our listeners do too, that it's been a very interesting conversation. Many thanks, Bill. Thank you all. Enormously enjoyed it. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank QTech for letting us do this collaboration. It's really great, you know, doing this podcast and especially having such a great person as Bill Janeway speak with us. Great mm. to have um, you with us. <laughs> and um, I, for me, the, the most interesting, the thing that I can really take away from this is what Bill was saying about Europe's innovation economy and how... Europe has really been able to, to subsidize entrepreneurship, new businesses, and venture capital. Um, this partially is due to um, the interest rates. And um, I, I can see that be, being American and spending some time in Silicon Valley at Cambridge in the UK, I sometimes feel like there is no difference in terms of ideas, the caliber of companies and the level of entrepreneurs. And it's nice to hear that from Bill as well. 
Mm, definitely. Something that um, stuck with me in the conversation with Bill was about what founders can do when they're uh, looking to seek investment from VCs or investors uh, in the sense that they can think about it in terms of what can they prove or what can they demonstrate in terms of their technology given a sort of a certain amount of investment and I think that's a nice way for founders to put across why they need funding and why they need an amount of funding. Given Bill's enormous wisdom it's really difficult to identify one nugget in particular that that stands out but um, I, I really enjoyed his observation that if an investor has to tell a CEO what to do This is not a very good sign and I think that's a good lesson for both investors and entrepreneurs. Thanks very much again to Bill for joining us on Q Talks and also to Shelby for joining us from the VCP Society. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who've been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and Please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us about your experiences with supplying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.